Are plants trying to kill us? On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, you're going to learn all about the carcinogenic compounds in vegetables. And Dr. Anthony Shaffey is going to make the case to why these plants are trying to kill us. Here we go. I remember there was an interview where they asked Garanda, like, well, you're into nutrition and you wrote books on diet. Well, there's this, this guy, these new diet gurus coming around saying this and saying this and saying this. What do you think about those? He's like, yeah, I haven't read anything about diet from anyone who was born in the last 50,000 years. That's not what I look at. I'm not looking at you know this study and that study. I'm looking at what our ancestors ate thousands of years ago. That's the only thing that matters to me because that's the only thing that matters to our biology. You can come up with any study that you want, but it won't change the fact that we have been genetically conserved for 300,000 years. So what we were eating 300,000 years ago, up until 10,000 years ago, that's what we should be eating. And that is a very, very highly whole food meat-based diet with a high fat content. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you so much for pressing play today. Today, we bring on Dr. Anthony Shafi. I recently spent some time with Dr. Anthony at Low Carb Denver with his wonderful girlfriend, and we got to hang out, spend some time together. And then, of course, we recorded a podcast that you're going to hear today. And uh, he's going to make the case to why plants are trying to kill us. He's going to share a story about being trained in medical school and how his professor was making the case that, for example, Brussels sprouts had 136 identified carcinogens in them. Mushrooms had over 100. As a matter of fact, you can't find one vegetable that has less than 60 carcinogenic compounds in them. Plant toxins. He's going to explain exactly how this works, why they're in there, and if we should avoid them forever. I'm going to make the argument for hormesis and why there could be a hormetic benefit. Now, Dr. Anthony Shafi has a different perspective and viewpoint on that, and it's good to get everybody's viewpoint. So you hear about that today. It's going to be a little controversial, so stay tuned for that. And we also get into discussion on plant-based diets in regards to reversing diabetes. And I asked him the question about these mastering diabetes doctors out there who are primarily teaching a plant-based diet to help with type 1 diabetes. Like, how are they getting away with that? And we'll discuss exactly how insulin resistance and diabetes develops. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview with Dr. Shafi and any of the previous Keto Camp podcast interviews, video format, that's on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Keto Camp. 
Okay, let's get right into the interview with Dr. Anthony Chaffee. Dr. Anthony is an American medical doctor and a neurosurgical resident who, for over a span of 20 plus years, has researched the optimal nutrition for human performance and health. He claims that the majority of the chronic illnesses out there are brought on by the food we consume and can be treated by switching to a diet tailored to our species. He's going to share a story uh, from 23 years ago, studying cancer biology at the University of Washington, and how he started to understand the role of plants and plant toxins. Here is Dr. Anthony Chaffee. Anthony, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast, my friend. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to see you again. Yeah, I mean, I just saw you a few days ago in Denver at uh, Low Carb Denver, which was awesome to finally get to meet you in person. And uh, yeah, you're doing incredible work. I, I just love the passion. You're also writing a new book, which I want to talk about. I love the passion, but also it's just like common sense that you bring to the table, right? It just, it makes so much sense when you start explaining things, especially when we talk about plant toxins. So I want to rewind to 20 plus years ago, you're studying cancer, you're studying the role of plant toxins on cancer and some of the things that your professor was teaching you back then about plants trying to kill us in those light bulb moments that occurred. Yeah, so that, that was really the, the aha moment I, I had, well, the really oh my God moment that I had that made me uh, sort of diverge away from eating plants and just exclusively eat meat. And um, when I was taking uh, cancer biology at the University of Washington, yeah, about, about 23 years ago, 22, 23 years ago, we were, we were learning about the, the, the roles that plant play in this insofar as that they have natural defense chemicals that they use. Plants in general have about a million different defense chemicals they use to, to poison and deter animals and insects from eating them because they're under constant assault by animals and insects. They have to be able to defend themselves. And that's one of the more, their more powerful defenses is actually having physical toxins in, in their own tissue to damage and deter uh, animals and insects. So we were looking at this from a cancer perspective. And we learned about how, how people had actually already discovered that there were quite a lot of plant toxins that were carcinogenic, had been shown to be carcinogenic already. And so we were told that Brussels sprouts had 136 identified carcinogens and that mushrooms had over 100. What? That spinach, kale, lettuce, celery. Yeah, exactly. And that all of these different produce items that we would eat on a regular basis would have dozens and dozens of different carcinogens in them. So this was 22 years ago, I'm sure more have been discovered since then. And they were actually quite abundant. We've known since the 1980s from the work of Professor Bruce Ames at UC Berkeley, that the naturally occurring toxins in plants actually outweigh the pesticides we spray on them by, by a factor of 10,000. And that the naturally occurring toxins are actually far more carcinogenic. So in, in, in particular to this study uh, that he published in, two, in uh, 1989, Professor Ames shows that uh, the carcinogens in mushrooms are actually 500 times more likely to cause cancer than the pesticide ALAR, which they were they were studying in comparison to, right? So, so you know, it's not just good enough to grow it in your own garden, in your backyard, and all of these horrible chemicals we spray on them. Uh, it's the plant themselves, and and we know this intuitively, right? We go, you get lost in the woods, you run out of food. You can't just eat any random plant, right? Most plants will make you very very sick or even kill you. And I ask people, okay, well, why is that? Like, well, because they're poisonous. I'm like, okay, right. That's true. And that also applies to other plants as well. These other plants have poisons as well. It's just we have more or less of an ability to detoxify certain poisons. But that doesn't mean that they're 100% that they're safe for us, you know. And so we were learning that 
from a cancer perspective. And we were extremely shocked by this and just absolutely blown away. And um, I remember we were just literally, literally looking around wildly, like, who's in on the joke? Someone has to be laughing. This can't be real. And then eventually we realized, okay, no, he's actually serious. No one is, there's no, no one's in on the joke. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, well, but, but vegetables are still good for you though, right? And, and you know, he just looked at us and gave us a funny look. And he just said, you know, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. And so I was like, right, forget plants. And I just, it just really hit home with me. I don't know, I, I'm sure it did with everyone else, just looking at the reactions on, on, on people's faces. I don't know how far they took it. But for me, I went directly to the grocery store straight after class. And I was just walking around the grocery store. Okay, what doesn't have plants? I was like, everything has plants. There's plants in everything. Everything we're eating has plants. And so I was just wandering around. Going, okay, what the hell do I eat? And I just came across some eggs. I was like, okay, it's eggs. Eggs don't come from a plant. I'll get some eggs. Came across some meat. Let's get some meat. Some milk. I'll get some milk. And so that's what I ate was just eggs, meat, and sometimes milk. Not always. But I was mostly just meat and eggs. And I dramatically changed my my health, my athletic performance, and just my energy levels. I just I just felt like a different breed of human. And I did this for years and years and years. And when I slipped off of this, when I was playing rugby in the UK, uh, because I just didn't have the same access to meat, and some of it was breaded and things like that. And I was like, well, was it that big of a deal? It, it was, it actually was a big deal. And I remember a few months into this you know, venture in, in England, I, w- I just wasn't feeling as, as just unreal, amazing. I, I normally just feel like a superhuman. I was just like, I could just dominate people, uh, you know, on the rugby field and just in training and everything. It was just like, I just, I just could push myself to no end, you know, and never have a problem. You know, a few months into it, I, I wasn't feeling as, as superhuman, amazing as I normally do. And I sort of wondered, I was like, okay, well, why is this? Am I not pushing myself as hard? I'm, I'm getting sort of more nagging injuries. I'm not able to, to uh, you know, perform the way I normally did. I didn't know exactly what, what was causing that. But looking back, that was when I started slipping off uh, of just eating meat. And I started eating, incorporating more uh, you know, plants and, and things like that in my diet because I just, you know, once you sort of get the crack in the dam, and it's like, well, you know, you can convince yourself, well, is breading that big of a deal? Dose makes the poison, all that sort of stuff then, you know, you just get a little bit more and a little bit more because, you know, what's the big deal? And you, and you, you slowly, slowly uh, dip back into more normal eating habits that other people are, are partaking in. But I always ate a lot of meat and I always ate whole foods. I didn't eat a lot of processed garbage. Wasn't really big fan of sweets. I mean, I liked sweets, but I, it wasn't something, but I also knew that I'm like, you know, I'm not going to eat that because I want to be uh, healthy. And so, so even then with a you know, whole food meat-based diet, I, I felt nothing close to as good as when I was exclusively eating meat as well. And then when I sort of rediscovered this, you know, five, six years ago and, and really realized like, no, actually humans are carnivores. That's the kind of animal we are. We should exclusively be eating meat. It's not that, oh, you don't have to eat plants. You don't have to eat salad because you can get everything you need from meat. It's that you don't want to eat salad because salad is harmful and you shouldn't eat salad. And then, you know, making, you know, starting to look into the literature, say, okay, what do we know? What can we prove? And, and finding out more and more and more to do with human health and nutrition and how that, how that affects our, our health and chronic diseases in particular. And then coming to the realization that these diseases like Crohn's disease, like ulcerative colitis, like diabetes, these are not diseases per se. These are toxicities. 
This is a toxic buildup of a species-inappropriate diet and a lack of species-specific nutrition, namely too many plants that we weren't biologically adapted to, to process properly and not enough wholesome meat that is, is providing the, the requisite energy and nutrition that we need. So, you know, some people will say, I know, I know Lane Norton uh, you know, recently has said, you know, I was like, well, plants are trying to kill us. It's sure taking a long time to do it. And it's just like, yeah, okay, that's the slow poison is still poison. And if you die 30 years early, you know, from smoking, people don't argue that, that you've been poisoned by that smoking and that was a detriment to your health. And, you know, when people, when you realize if you study genetics, which I don't know if he has, that humans are actually designed based on the length of our telomeres to live 120 years. So why are we dying in our 60s and 70s? That's literally middle age. And so if you're eating you know, a mixed diet or a processed food diet and you're dying in your 60s or in your 70s, you have been poisoned. That is a poison. Uh, you know, you have, you know, a slow poison is still a poison, like I said. And again, the Crohn's disease, the ulcerative colitis, the diabetes, you know, and different autoimmune diseases, those are not diseases. Those are the plants poisoning you. So he's saying, oh, well, they're not really doing anything because he doesn't recognize the effects that these things are having. He doesn't recognize that Crohn's disease is this, these plant toxins affecting him, right? Or not him, but other people. And type 2 diabetes as well. And this can be easily demonstrated by, the, by their reversible nature. There are a number of studies in the current literature showing that if you put someone with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis on an elimination diet, like an elemental diet where you're just giving them the nutrients that they need and nothing else, right? It's highly processed, like a, you know, it's a shake sort of thing. Uh, it doesn't have any carbs, just a lot of fat and protein and, and different sorts of nutrients. That that is a better treatment to get someone out of a uh, acute flare-up of Crohn's than steroids like prednisone, right? That is the gold standard for getting someone out. I mean, that, that stops a flare-up like that for an autoimmune issue. And yet it's better to not eat you know, plants and vegetables and all these sorts of things than to take steroids. There was another, another study that showed uh, with Crohn's in particular, two groups, it was an interventional trial, where they had a group that was eating a ketogenic diet with no fiber. So no fiber, no carbs. And they found that people with Crohn's stayed in remission on average 51 months, right? So more than four years on average, right? And the people who were still eating carbs and fiber stayed in remission on average zero months, right? Big contrast, right? So what is that saying? That's saying that the carbs and sugar cause Crohn's, right? So that's something that, that needs to be recognized. You're saying, oh, well, this, these poisons, oh, they're not really poisoning. They are, and they're causing these diseases, which we are just saying, this is, this is Crohn's disease, this is something else. But actually, in fact, it's, um, it's actually from the toxicity. We also see this reversible nature in type 2 diabetes. So in type 2 diabetes, it's been shown clinically that you can reverse type 2 diabetes, get people off medication, get people off insulin by putting them on a ketogenic diet, any ketogenic diet, right? And you put them on a high-fat meat-based diet, that, you know, they're going to have even better health results, right? So that's, that's reversible, right? So type 2 diabetes is not a disease. It's carbohydrate toxi toxicity. It's, you know, fructose poisoning. Like, that's what it is. And that's what these poisonings look like. So to say that, oh, well, they're really taking, they're not really doing a good job poisoning us. They are. It's just you're not recognizing that these diseases are the manifestations of that toxicity. You know, you make some really, really great points, especially when you talk about when people are dying when they're 60 years old, essentially they're cutting their lifespan in half because I, I agree, we're designed to live to 120. So if you think about that, for sure, it's taking some time, but it is killing people and shortening their lifespan. But 
I agree with you uh, 100% with the plant toxins, and I feel so much better when I eliminate them, and I see that with a lot of my students. But I also want to play a little bit of a, a devil's advocate, if you will, right? So when we think about like the the type 1, the uh, mastering diabetes guys, the, they focus a lot on, on reversing diabetes for type 1 diabetics, and they use a plant-based diet. How are they able to get results? What are your thoughts on those guys? Well, you know, the thing is, is that you can you can get these same results by eliminating out the causative agent, right? So in, in diabetes, it's really carbohydrates and sugar causes a lot of this this problem. So and you can do a ketogenic diet with with you know being vegetarian, you absolutely can, or you or even vegan. You're just it's just the absence of carbohydrates, right? And that has been shown clinically to reverse diabetes. You know, the, the problem with diabetes is, is blood sugar control and insulin resistance, right? So the, the, the treatment for that is to lower your insulin, right? So how do you lower your insulin? You reduce the amount of carbohydrates that are in your system. Once you stop eating carbohydrates, your body makes the appropriate amount of carbohydrates, and then your insulin will come down and you won't have to, to deal with all that. Um, you know, diabetes, type 2 diabetes in particular, or specifically, I should say, you know, long before you are pre-diabetic, according to your blood sugar numbers, you're hyperinsulinemic. So you will have high fasting insulin levels. And, and you can have high fasting insulin levels for 10 to 15 years before you ever manifest any high blood sugar on your readings, right? So, so it takes a long time to build up, but the problem is still high insulin and insulin resistance, and then, you know, continuing to sort of feed the beast and eat more carbohydrates. Uh, I, I haven't come across, you know, the, the work in particular that you're referring to, but I mean, just... Theoretically, I mean, anybody can do a ketogenic diet. They can, and they can do it with with a whole whole food, plant based diet. That, that's totally true. Uh, if you're eating a bunch of, you know, wheat and carbs and bread, probably not as as beneficial. But you're going to still improve that you know on that whole food, plant based diet, even if it does include you know whole grains and things like that. It's still going to be an improvement on a bunch of like highly processed carbs and sugar. And sugar adds to everything in this process you know, because it's addictive, and, and food companies know that. And so it becomes highly palatable, and you just eat more of it and and buy more of their product. So type one in particular, I haven't really heard too many uh, people doing like a vegetarian sort of diet to, to cure type one, but there are studies with uh, ketogenic diets. Uh, helping type one. I mean, obviously, I mean, we're using a ketogenic diet for a hundred years to help type one and type two diabetics. You know, type one even before we had access to insulin, we were using ketogenic diet to to help survival of uh, of type one diabetics. And you can sort of get them if you get them sort of early. You know, it is possible that you might be able to salvage their their body's ability to make insulin or at least some insulin and save their life. And uh, and then there are animal studies looking at. Um, it's always funny with ketogenic diet because it, it sometimes has a negative connotation. So they, they'll, they'll use other sorts of words like, a, a, well, we know fasting is really good, but what about a fasting mimicking diet? This, we just, fasting's hard. So what about a diet that mimics fasting? It's a ketogenic diet, right? But they don't want to say that because, oh, there's ketogenic people. We don't want to listen to them. So you say a fasting mimicking diet, all of a sudden you can, you can pass it by the ethics board and the, uh, and the editors. But so you look at a fasting mimicking diet with, uh, Type one diabetics and type two diabetics. They were looking at in mice, but they were they were they found they could just absolutely reverse both, right? So type two diabetes just goes away, right? That's insulin resistance. That's that's uh, hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia, uh, and then you're doing it chronically uh, for years, and this causes problems. You get rid of carbs, that problem goes away, and you're able to to live normally. 
the type one diabetics were very interesting because they found that they could actually, this actually stimulated the stem cells in their pancreas and they could recreate their beta islet cells and start making yeah. insulin again, which is very wild, man. Yeah. yeah. And so, so they're, they're doing, they're doing that in human trials now. And so the, those guys that did the fasting mimicking diets, uh, for, for mice there, um, from what I understand, yeah, for longer. Yeah. So uh, from what I understand, they're, they're doing that in humans now. I don't know if it's actually started, but I just read their literature. They're like, we're going to start doing this in people now. And uh, so I would imagine that they're in the midst of that, which would be great. I've, t- I've spoken to a number of type 1 diabetics who've gone carnivore, even just keto, and uh, just completely revolutionized their experience with type 1 diabetes. They, they only have, they don't have to take multiple doses of insulin throughout the day. They just take a minimal dose of long acting insulin and that covers them for 24 hours, they don't have to keep taking uh, all these uh, doses of insulin and medications and things like that. So that just makes their life a lot easier. Uh, I haven't spoken to anyone yet who's able to, been able to come off of it. It may be that, that after a certain point, you know, you, you sort of miss that honeymoon period where you can sort of salvage uh, your pancreas's ability to make insulin. But in, in any case, I haven't come across someone who's been able to come off insulin completely as a type 1 diabetic. So as a type 2 bi- diabetic, most people can come off of, of insulin even when they're insulin dependent. But it would be very interesting to see if we can figure out some sort of protocol to stimulate the, the pancreas to remake those beta odds. So hopefully they're able to do that. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, that's going to be so fascinating. I, I hope so too. But yeah, to your point, Anthony, same with, with my a few students in my academy are type 1 diabetic. And when they implement a keto or a carnivore approach or a combination of going back and forth between the two, it just helps their quality of life. Instead of injecting insulin three, four, five times a day, it's one or two times a day. It just it helps them so much. They don't have to get the, they don't have to spend more money on insulin or worry about it. It just makes their life so much easier. And until we find out how we could regenerate those beta cells, that's going to be the best option for right now. But here's the other argument. When we talk about plant toxins, I know that when we talk about stress in general, Anthony, stress is only bad when your body does not adapt to it, right? So fasting we know is a stress to the body, but when you adapt to it and have the feasting part with the fasting part, you get stronger. Exercise, same thing. The right amount, you adapt to it, you get stronger too much, not good. Cold exposure, hot exposure. We could go on and on and on about stressors. Hey, Keto Camper, it is time to get your shift together. What do I mean? Sugar Shift is a unique probiotic designed as a working system to convert the sugars, glucose, and fructose in your gut to the free radical scavenger mannitol, which also feeds a healthy gut microbiome, supports the mitochondria, and by the way, it increases the production of butyrate, which helps protect the gut lining and is one of the main ketone bodies. You heard of it, beta-hydroxybutyrate. This is one of my favorite formulas. It's an eight-strain formula built as a working system to provide specific gut functions, and it's unique in its probiotic formulation. One of my favorite things about this product is that it breaks down and detoxifies glyphosate. The product also includes strains that has been shown to improve muscle mass and support changes in body mass. I've used it with several of my Keto Camp Academy students, and they have reported to me It's helped them with their sugar cravings. It helped them with their transition from sugar burner to fat burner. Helps to keep them in ketosis and take the results to another level. Helps when they hit a plateau. Improves digestion. In a recent study, BiotaQuest, the company that makes Sugar Shift, showed huge improvements in blood sugar reduction, A1C reduction, also reducing LPS, which is an endotoxin 
that can create inflammation in your body. If you'd like to get your hands on a bottle of Sugar Shift from BiotiQuest, head to BiotiQuest.com, which is spelled B-I-O-T-I-Q-U-E-S-T, and then put the coupon code CAMP, K-A-M-P-1-0 at checkout, and also check out their other products as well. We'll drop links down below with the coupon code in the podcast notes. So what about the case that, okay, what if somebody has a healthy gut? They eat some of these plant toxins from time to time, and their microbiome is adapting to the stressor and creating a hormetic benefit, maybe creating more diversity in the gut, maybe strengthening the gut because it's adapting to that plant toxin. What about that argument? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so, so I mean, th- there's certainly things that can be can be hormetic and give a hormetic effect. But, you know, the argument that that all of these plant toxins, literally, there's about a million of them that these plants make, or, or all of them hormetic. I mean, we're not in the Garden of Eden. These plants are not making these chemicals to give us a hormetic benefit. They're just not. I mean, that, that's not where they are. They created these chemicals millions of years before humans existed. They had no, no interest in us as a species when these, these chemicals were created. That's, that's a bit of a stretch. There's, you know, like, you know, like, like a pine needle said, I'm going to make this little thing because, you know, in, in, in 200 million years, there's going to be a thing called a human. And I really want to help that guy, you know, it's like, that, that, that's insane. So, you know, these things were, came around hundreds of millions of years before we existed. They're going to be around hundreds of millions of years after we're long gone. Right. So these, these are not designed for that. Okay. It's now, now that doesn't mean that something might not have a hormetic effect or even a medicinal effect. You know, you have, you know, uh, you know, aspirin in willow bark. We found that, hey, that, that's helpful. That's not meant to help us. That's meant to actually do something else, you know, to help the plant. So when you look at hormesis, right, a million different chemicals, right, and a million different toxins in these plants, hundreds, maybe thousands in each plant, right? So all of those hormetic. Do you know a dose? They say one of them is hormetic, right? What dose is it hormetic at? Because too much is not hormetic. It's going to be harmful. Too little, it's not going to do anything at all, uh, just like a medicine. And so you don't know that. All these people that say there's, oh, well, there's hormesis and all these sorts of things, they're just throwing that word out there. there. There's no actual evidence either asked for or provided to say which chemicals are hormetic, at what dosage, how you know, because you, know, you just get one leaf from your know, spinach or sage, that doesn't necessarily have all the same chemicals in them. This is, this is the argument between uh, naturopathy and allopathic medicine is that, you know, you have digitalis in foxglove, but what were the conditions it was grown in? What were the soil quality? When was it picked? When does it have to be picked? Does it have to be dried? Does it have to be fresh? I mean, this changes the chemical composition of all of these things. And so now all of a sudden you don't know what dosage of digitalis you're getting and you could kill yourself, right? Which is why that foxglove makes digitalis is to kill you if you try to eat it. It's not trying to help people with with heart failure. You know, heart failure didn't exist when that plant, you know, arose. So, you know, it's trying to screw with your heart and give you an arrhythmia and kill you. That's what it's trying to do. And we find that in micro doses that you can have this beneficial hormetic effect, but it's in very controlled doses, right? So we, we give digitalis measured in micrograms, so a millionth of a gram, right? And you get 50 micrograms off in one direction or another. You're either not doing anything or you're dying, right? So that's not good. So, so what is hormetic? I mean, alcohol is hormetic in a sense, insofar as you can build up a tolerance towards alcohol. But is that benefiting you overall as, a, as an animal? You're getting an hormetic effect. You're getting a tolerance towards alcohol, but you're damaging your body in a thousand other different ways. And I think overall, you're harming yourself. So you're not getting an overall benefit. You know, the idea of that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger doesn't really make sense because it 
that's talking about your character, you know, and it's just like, it makes me stronger mentally. And as a person, I can deal with more hardship in the future. You get your limbs chopped off in an accident, like you're not objectively stronger, you're objectively diminished physically, right? And so that is something that people on on that side of the argument, I, I think have need to flesh out a lot more, you know, so what chemicals are, are hermetic? What dose are they hermetic at? How do you know? And then all the other hundreds of other chemicals that are in that plant, are they all hormetic at that exact same level as well, right? Because if you're hormetic for chemical A, well, you've got a dose of chemical B, C through 900, right, that are going to be at different doses. Those are probably not all going to be hormetic. The odds of that are, are literally zero, right? But let's say, right, that they are, are they all going to be hormetic at that exact level? You still don't know you know, what that level is and what that dose is. And so, you know, the idea that all of these million chemicals are all hormetic and that just by randomly eating salads and veggies and, and doing whatever, you're just going to perfectly get that. I think that that's, that's a bit of an absurd contention. Okay. Okay. That's well explained. All right. So the next question would be, how do we know who's right, right? Because we have you, Anthony, and you're so brilliant. And I love the way you explain things saying, these plants are going to kill you, avoid them. And then we have other smart people in our space saying, eat broccoli, it's going to help with estrogen metabolism, eat your Brussels sprouts, eat this, eat that. How does the person know what's working for them? How can they test? What are some things they should pay attention to? Like, what? how do we actually know this is working for us or against us? Well, on an individual basis, you know that's quite easy. You can you can just do a complete elimination diet, just eliminate down to you know just just red meat and water, and do that for a month and see how you feel. And then you start introducing things one at a time. It's very important to do one at a time, uh, so you you know exactly what's affecting you. So you say, okay, is broccoli that big of a deal for me? You you eliminate out from your diet for a month and eliminate down to nothing. And you see how your body feels and you introduce some, some broccoli back in. You know, actually, you know, I feel fine and I like broccoli. So I'm going to eat broccoli. Go ahead, eat broccoli. And you can do that with coffee. You can do that with tea. You can do that with spices and seasonings. You can do that with arsenic. I mean, you can do whatever, whatever you want. <laughs> but So what you're saying, so you're saying some people can have these anti-nutrients and actually thrive is what you're saying, but you would have to eliminate everything and then bring it in. And would you say, because the way that I teach it is similar. I'll tell them to bring something in one at a time for four days and then one at a time for another four days just because it might take four days for a symptom to manifest. Would you agree with that approach? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great approach. And people are different in that sense. I, I think, you know, people say that, you know, we're, we're all different. We all have different, you know, whatever we can eat or, or different things are better or are good for different, uh, different people. That's true in the sense that, that some people are more resistant to, you know, these harmful chemicals and, and have, a, have a better ability to detoxify these things. That's definitely true. But I don't think that that changes what, what is optimal for us. I still think that, you know, we are animals and we are the same species of animals. We're, we're highly, you know, genetically conserved for the last 300,000 years. We are homo sapiens sapiens. We're very specific uh, subspecies of humans. And all animals, all species of animals have a common optimal diet, right? I, I've never been able to find an example through all my studies of biology and zoology, an example in nature of two members of the same species that had different optimal diets. I don't, I don't think anyone's ever come across that as well. I've, I've challenged that. I've, I've sort of put out that challenge multiple times and no one ever been able to, to come back. 
uh, with a with a good response or any response. They usually just go like, well, you know, let's talk about something else. They usually just like cut off with that one. But the idea that, you know, some people have had had different exposures, like people, you know, from our, uh, you know, ethnic background have had uh, exposure to agriculture a lot longer than say the Native Americans and the Native Australians who are much more susceptible to these plant toxins than we are because they've only just recently come across them. So they haven't had really any time to genetically adapt to them. So, you know, they get far more sick when eating a Western diet than we do. And we actually used to call this Western diseases, diseases of the West, because when people were eating a Western diet, they were getting Western diseases. And they found that people in Australia and and North and South America, they weren't getting these things. But when they started eating the food of the West, they started getting the diseases of the West. What does that tell you? That tells you the food is causing the disease. Now, some people will be better able to handle those those toxins and be able to, to better manage them. And if they choose to do that, that's fine. I'm actually quite capable of handling a lot of these things, but it does affect me. And when I've tried sampling things back in just like a little bit, I was just like, yeah, I don't really feel good. My face is a bit itchy. My nose gets a bit stuffy. My, I feel like I'm getting a bit of asthma. I'm like, I don't like that. You know, even like just like a bit of garlic on some chicken that my mom brought back from a restaurant, like, you know, a few months into this, I was just like, it's just making me feel just a bit gunky and, and gross, had a bit of brain fog for the next couple hours. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. I love garlic. I don't want that. I don't want to feel like that. And so people can try that. I think when you're trying to prove this to the individual, I think that's, that's much more straightforward. You just eliminate down to meat and then you introduce certain things and you see, and you will see that you feel so much better a thousand times better, you know, just by by eating just a lot of fatty meat and, and drinking water uh, than, than eating anything else. And as a comparison to yourself, you'll feel better than you've ever felt in your entire life. I can guarantee that, like that, that will happen. And so that's easy to an individual to, to show that, that N equals one study, like, well, I do this, I feel better and I'm healthier and all my blood markers are better and everything's improving in every way. Obviously, I'm going to keep doing this. That's easy for people to do. As discussing this on a, on a larger scale, on a larger stage, saying, well, what's better for people conceptually, I think you just go back to first principles. You go back to our biology and physiology and understanding what kind of animal we are. What did we evolve as? What sort of things were our ancestors eating that drove our evolution to its current iteration? That is what's most important. You know, Even, even the golden era bodybuilders like Garanda, you know, wrote books on nutrition, basically eat steak and eggs, steak and eggs, steak and eggs. That's what they were saying. And these guys had the best physiques ever. And this is before steroids. And I remember there was an interview where they asked Garanda, like, well, you're into nutrition and you wrote books on diet. Well, there's this, this guy, these new diet gurus coming around saying this and saying this and saying this. What do you think about those? And he's like, yeah, I haven't read anything about diet from anyone who was born in the last 50,000 years. That's not what I look at. I'm not looking at you know this study and that study. I'm looking at what our ancestors ate thousands of years ago. That's the only thing that matters to me because that's the only thing that matters to our biology. You can come up with any study that you want, but it won't change the fact that we have been genetically conserved for 300,000 years. So what we were eating 300,000 years ago up until 10,000 years ago, that's what we should be eating. And that is a very, very highly whole food meat-based diet with a high fat content and maybe some plants mixed in here and there if they needed it. But even anthropologically, we look at the Native Americans and the Native Australians. When they had access to meat, they they really just ate meat. They, they really wouldn't eat plants. They, they ate the plants that they needed to to survive. It was survival food, which is great that we have that robust nature, unlike cats and canines that, that they most plants will just just kill them dead, especially felines. So, so they if they don't get meat, 
they're gone. We can survive on other things, but that doesn't mean that, that it's optimal. It doesn't mean that that's the best that we can do for ourselves. And when you're in a situation where you're starving, it's, it, it gives a serious survival advantage to be able to eat something that you, you wouldn't normally and survive. You get to survive. But that doesn't mean that that's the best you can do. And when you have access to these things, I think that that's, that, that will obviously be a better thing. So in these populations, when they had access to meat, that was really what they were eating. And uh, predominantly, uh, even exclusively, and you look at the Inuits, I mean, they don't, they don't even have access to you know, plants and tubers and fruit and things like that. So they're really just eating meat and fat and they're thriving. You, you cannot survive in the Arctic North or during an ice age unless you're thriving. You're either thriving or you're dying. That's it. There's, those are the two options when it's minus 60. Like, that's it. Do you know if you're getting enough magnesium? Because four out of five Americans are not. And that's a big problem because magnesium is involved in more than 300 biochemical reactions in your body. In other words, if you're deficient, there are about 300 plus things your body cannot do the right way. I want to share real quick with you the most common signs to pay attention to that indicate you're magnesium deficient. Are you irritable or anxious? Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or twitches? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you sometimes constipated? There are way more. Those are just a few of the most common ones I've seen. But here's the point. Most people don't know this. Just taking a magnesium supplement won't solve your problem because most magnesium supplements use the cheapest kinds that your body cannot use or absorb. That's why I love Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb. All Bioptimizer supplements are best in class. And if for some reason you don't feel differently, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. They are so confident they are offering a 365-day money-back guarantee. So head over to bioptimizers.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code KETOCAMP10 at checkout. We'll drop a link for that down below in the notes of the podcast. Go get your magnesium on. Yeah, so question for you. I love the idea of the end of one exper experience, experiment, excuse me, where you just eliminate everything, just have me and then add one thing in for four days, see how your body responds to it and then do some lab work. That's always a good idea. What about, and this doesn't happen often. I've taken a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand through a carnivore or a different variation of carnivore. Most people feel great, but there is a small percentage of people who start to do carnivore and they actually feel worse. What's happening there? What advice would you give there? Yeah. So, so I always try to pick through exactly what they're eating and, you know, it's, and there's always something you can, you can troubleshoot. I haven't, I've yet to see someone who's just like, I eat meat and doing everything like exactly as I would, I would do myself. And then they're having, having problems. I've never, I haven't seen that. There's always something that is affecting them that you can sort of troubleshoot. Sometimes they're still, you know, drinking coffee or they're using artificial sweeteners quite often. You know, you you have to wonder, you know, what their, their goals are as well. And really, you know, when, when you're seeing someone as a doctor, as a first patient, it's really, really important to find out exactly what their goals are, exactly what they're coming to you for, exactly what uh, their aims are. And, and that's true too when you're changing your diet. Maybe some people, they really want to lose weight. And so a lot of people come to a carnivore or ketogenic diet in order to lose weight. And so then they come in and they're like, I'm not losing weight. I'm not losing weight. This is failing me. I'm worse. I'm getting, I'm gaining weight. So everything's very negative. And then you talk to them about, okay, well, how do you feel? What is your health? What is your, how are your pants fit? And they're like, well, actually my pants fit better. 
and uh, and I feel better and my psoriasis is gone and I've stopped taking my, you know, um, different medications for blood pressure and what have you. And, uh, but, you know, carnivore didn't work for me because I didn't lose weight. It was like, well, it sounded like it was actually working great for you. And there can be something else going on. I mean, you can even actually change your body composition and gain weight, right? You know, muscle and bone are more dense than fat. So you can gain small volume of muscle and bone and lose a large volume of fat and you'll gain weight but your body composition will be different and your clothes will fit differently. And there are some people that actually just gain weight. And that might just be because they're gaining a bit of fat or they're gaining some muscle, bone and fat. That's rare. But eventually, you know, it's generally people that have been, you know, dieting, crash dieting, starving themselves, and eating, you know, things that aren't great for them, and alternating back and forth between those two for decades. And you can look at their hormone panel and it's way off. You know, their leptin is through the roof. They have leptin resistance. They have insulin resistance. They have diabetes. They have all these other sorts of things that, that can contribute to this. And it's just, it's just going to take time for that to settle down. It's, there's, you know, as, as one person put it, you know, there's no shortcut out of the woods. You walk 10 miles in, you're going to have to walk 10 miles back. And uh, it's not quite that bad. You know, you, you hurt yourself for 50 years, it doesn't take 50 years to then get out of it, but it can take years. But you will improve and you will get better. A lot of people, when I speak to, speak to them, especially when they're gaining weight and things like that, you say, well, this didn't work for me, but I really wish I could have kept doing it because of my autoimmune issues were better and all these other things were better. You know, I ask them like, well, that, first of all, like you are getting improvements, that's really good, but they're focusing on the one thing that was so important to them, they consider this a failure a lot of them are still using sweeteners. That's a major one that I see like monk fruit sugar and stevia and, and artificial sweeteners and things like that. Well, it's not technically carbs. It's not technically sugar. Therefore, it's okay. It's like, well, look, it's not natural. And it's not, it's not, it's not natural to us, you know, because nature, I mean, you know, arsenic is natural, right? But it's not natural to us as a natural food source to us, right? So if we weren't eating this 50,000 years ago, if it didn't even exist 50,000 years ago, if it didn't exist 100 years ago, don't put it in your body. Like this is not what you should be eating. And a lot of people do though. And a lot of people will have like the, the different sorts of snacks and treats and stuff like that that aren't technically carbs. They're not technically sugar, but they can actually cause different disruptions. So figuring that out, sometimes people just aren't eating enough. Sometimes they're, you know, because your satiety signals are so different, you just feel, uh, you know, full all the time because when you're eating carbohydrates, and sugar in particular, that can actually derange your hunger signals and it makes you th your brain think that you're actually starving when you're, when you're not. And so you tend to overeat. And then when you get off of all that and you're only eating meat and you can actually listen to your satiety signals, your hunger signals are much more subtle. And so it's actually very easy for people to undereat on a, on a carnivore diet or even a ketogenic diet. And so some people could just be simply not eating enough and they're, I'm, I'm not feeling good, I'm feeling tired, I feel gross. And it's like, how much are you eating? And they found out they're not eating a lot. And you say, okay, eat until meat stops tasting. Like, do you have leftovers when you eat? I'm like, no, I, you know, I eat this amount. That should be enough, right? Well, I don't know. Do you feel like you could eat more? Like, well, yeah, I've never gotten to the point where I was just like, yeah, I could stop eating. Okay, try and get to that point. Because I think that's a, that's a major indicator uh, that your body's telling you is like, hey, you know, we need more nutrients. If you get that positive feedback for me, then I think that your body's telling you you should you should eat. If you're not eating carbs, if you're not eating anything else, that that can be tripping that up or taking medications like prednisone or prednisolone or something like that that can increase your hunger signals, which which happens. You know, then you you eat into satiety, you eat until things stop tasting good. I think you'll start getting less and less positive feedback, and eventually you get like negative feedback. And sometimes people that have 
you know, history with portion control issues. They're just, they're like, well, this is how much I'm going to eat. I have to finish my plate because that's how I was raised. And, and they eat that and they, and they have to force feed themselves for two hours. Well, you don't need to do that either. You just get to the point where meat stops tasting interesting. I try to have leftovers whenever I eat. I try to, to make enough or order enough that I'm going to have a bit of leftovers because I want to satisfy my body's capacity for, for nutrition. So that can be a thing as well. There are a number of things, but there are so many different things that, that you can just, when you really get into the specifics with it, you know, the devil's in the details. When you really start to track down, okay, exactly what are you eating? Exactly how does that make you feel? When are you eating? That could be another thing too. Just the time of day that you're eating. People are used to eating three times a day. I have to eat breakfast. I have to eat lunch. I have to eat dinner. You don't actually. I generally eat about once a day. And I find that if I eat a big meal in the middle of the day, I'm very tired. I get very lethargic. What happens to a, a lion when they, when they take down a, a, a gazelle and eat that? They sleep for 16 they're ready hours. To, they're ready to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's the thing, you know, that that's, that's putting our body into a natural rest and digest mode. You know, a lot of like 40% of your blood supply goes to your intestine or something crazy like that. And, um, and that, that's, that's blood that's not going to your brain. It's not going to your body. It's not going to your muscles. And so, you know, that you're going to be a bit more tired. You're going to feel a bit more lethargic. People can also have health issues that they're on medications for. My mom, when she started this five years ago, she was a type two diabetic. She was on three different oral medications and a high dose of insulin. And a couple of weeks into it, I mean, she was, <laughs> my mom is a, an amazing cook. She literally has over 500 cookbooks. She's read them all and used them all. And, and she's a, just a wonderful cook. And she just, and she really loves that. She loves cooking and doing new recipes and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, growing up in my house was great. We had amazing food all the time. Always home cooked whole foods, very meat heavy. She missed that. She was very upset. She was just like, this is just boring. It's stupid. Just cooking a steak every day. She was just getting very grumpy about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help my mom with this and trying to encourage her. And so I asked her, I was like, well, but, you know, let's look on the bright side. You know, are you feeling better? How do you feel? She said, well, no, I'm, I'm not feeling better. I'm feeling tired all the time. I feel grumpy. I'm this and that. And then it just sort of hit me. I was like, you're diabetic and you're not eating carbs anymore. And you're on a ton of medication. What's your blood sugar? And she checked it. It was like 50. You know, and so she's like, oh, okay. Well, now you're, you're taking too much of this medication. You, you actually need to come off it. So she's like, oh, okay. And so she started coming off and coming off and coming off. And after about a month, month to six weeks, she came off all of her oral medications. And she just went in. And so after the month, my parents were going to try it for a month and see how they felt. And my sister asked her, I was like, so what are you going to do? Are you going to just go back to eating normally or what? And my mom was like, well, I mean, I don't think I can. I mean, this is just such a good job controlling my blood sugar. I think I think I have to keep going with this. And she eventually came off all of her of her oral medications and came down to a minimum dose of her insulin. And her doctor was shocked. And you reduced her HbA1c from nine down to six point one. Right, so nine is quite high, and six point one is is high normal for a non diabetic. And she went to her doctor after two months and had these results. And her doctor just said, "How the hell did you do this? What the hell did you do?" You know, diabetes is a progressive disease. It only gets worse. We can mitigate it and slow it down with, you know, diet, lifestyle, medications, but it only gets worse. It does not get better. How the hell did you do this? And she just, you know, told her, you know, my, my work in this and my sort of my, my theories on humans being carnivores and should be eating, uh, you know, just meat and, and, and the evidence for that. And she was just like, you know, I'd be really interested to speak with him and, and find out more about this. So I went in there and had a you know really you know great conversation with her and and she just completely just literally like an hour and a half I was there with her and her PA and we were just like you know I was talking about all the stuff that I'd come across in the last few months of of you know researching into this 
And they were just like, right, yeah, this sounds great. And you know, she, and she was a very bright woman, uh, my mom's doctor. She was an MD, PhD from Harvard, had a PhD in biochemistry from Harvard. And I was, I was saying to her, I was like, look, I think we're looking at biochemistry all wrong. You know, we're calling this a fed state and it's a fasting state, but I think those, those are wrong. I think the fasting state is actually our primary metabolic state. That's where all of our heavy machinery comes to bear. We have studies with, uh, with wolves in 1981 that said like, Hey, if you need to eat carbs to burn carbs, like do, you know, wolves don't carbo load before they chase caribou for 10 hours. So, you know, how, you know, how are they doing it? Do they have blood sugar? Do they have liver collection? And finally, yeah, it's rock solid. It doesn't change. And so, so no matter what they're doing, they're just keeping perfect control over their blood sugar and their glycogen. This happens for us as well. And this is something that we've forgotten, but we have a hundred years of research into diabetics and, and epilepsy, especially when putting people on a ketogenic diet, they do much better and they really control their blood sugars very, very well. And so she was like, right, well, we're changing that. And so, you know, she, she took my mom off all these medications and, and started, uh, you know, looking into things from that perspective as well. And, and uh, from what I understand, she's, she's changed her entire approach to her diabetic patients and is now incorporating, you know, those sorts of diet and lifestyle interventions and is having, uh, you know, the results you would expect. That is super cool. That is awesome. I love to hear that. What, a, what an amazing story. And yeah, you know, kudos to that doctor who could have just ignored it or chalked it up as like a miracle like most doctors do, but she actually wanted to learn more. So I love that. And kudos to you for being there for your mom, supporting her. And you're right, you know, type 2 diabetes, fairly easy to reverse. I mean, we, it could happen in a matter of weeks to months, but it's fairly easy to reverse. And that's not the message we've been told. We've been told the opposite. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to take a quick break and give a nice shout out to Upgraded Formulas. They are a sponsor of our podcast. We've had Barton Scott, the founder, on the show several times before. And here's why I love Upgraded Formulas. They create clinically studied, stabilized, and nano-sized supplements with 99.99% absorption rate to improve your health, sleep, energy, and so much more. If you're like me, you spend money on supplements, but have you ever wondered why most supplements just don't work for you? You don't really notice a difference despite the extravagant marketing claims. Here's the truth. Most supplements on the market are made in a way that your body can't absorb, which means you are peeing most of the benefits. Yep, you heard about expensive pee. This is true. But it's not your fault. The secret is clinically proven nano-stabilized supplements. These nano-supplements are broken down to bypass the digestion and go straight into the blood where they can travel throughout your body and get to where they need to go. What does this mean for you? It means more energy, better sleep, better mood, less joint pain, younger looking skin and hair, and of course, less inflammation. So stop wasting your money on subpar supplements that don't get you the results and health you need and get upgraded formulas, upgrade your supplements today. Head over to upgradedformulas.com. Use the coupon code KETOSIS, K-E-T-O-S-I-S at checkout to get 15% off your entire order. Getting back to what you were sharing about carnivore, when I do carnivore, strictly meat and eggs, I feel so satisfied that I tend to just do one meal a day as well. And I just make sure I feast at that one meal. I'm just so full. And I notice that happens with a lot of people too. And um, I usually do that like around 5 p.m. or so. And then I don't eat until the next day, 5 p.m. And I just feel great. When I do carnivore, my energy levels are through the roof. Something that I track that I think is really important, if you're going to like see if something's working for you or against you is heart rate variability. 
And my heart rate variability always improves when I eliminate plant toxins. Uh, it'll be around 70 or 80 when I'm doing carnivore. And then if I bring in plants, it'll go down to 60 or 50. Now, when I was in Denver, my heart rate variability dropped to 29 because of the altitude, but I knew it was the altitude and not plant toxins. But what do you think about heart rate variability as a metric to see if uh, you know, carnivore or plant toxins are working for you or against you? Well, that, that's actually a good question. It's not something that I've, I've looked into too closely, actually, but I, I have come across people that, that do have significant variations and, and, they're, and they're quite concerned about that. When they're going on a carnivore, they're like, oh, normally my resting heart rate is like 60. And then now it's like, you know, 75. Like, what the hell is that? I, nah, I don't really worry too much about that. I, I think whatever you're doing, I believe in the, the, the core principle. And, you know, going back to your know, first principle is just looking at what, what's underlying things is that, you know, biologically, this is the kind of animal we are that meat provides the optimal nutrition for us. And so if you are eating that, your body's going to work the way it's supposed to physiologically. I don't worry too much about sort of micromanaging my physiology. I think my body's going to be able to do that a lot better than I do. Um, I do notice, even for myself, when I first started this, I would get sort of like very heavy heartbeat, not a palpitation, like palpitation or an irregular beat, I should say. I, you know, I didn't experience that, but I, like a heavy beat that you were just like, it's a noticeable beat, but the rhythm is normal. The rate is normal. It's just very noticeable. Sometimes when you, when you check uh, the EKG on these guys, what you find is a similar pattern to athletes that are getting, increasing their cardiovascular health, you know, in, in like in a, pre, in a preseason sort of area. Uh, and so I think of that in that sense, you know, you're giving your body optimal nutrition. Now your, your, your heart's going to be affected just like your other tissue is as well. Maybe that manifests as your, your, you feel your heart rates being, you change a bit or it feeling like a heavier beat. But as long as it's a normal rhythm, it's not you know, too fast, like above 100 sustained you know, when you're not exercising, uh, just at rest in, in a regular beat that you have an arrhythmia of some form or another, I, I, I don't think there's much of an issue. If you do have one of those issues, I think you should get it checked out. There's nothing in meat that's going to cause an arrhythmia, that's going to cause dysregulation of, of your heart. But you might have something underlying. Now, let's say, you know, maybe your, your electrolytes, you know, are, are just a little bit out of whack, which is quite rare on a, on a carnivore diet. But, you know, it, it can be argued that when you're switching from eating a lot of carbohydrates, when your insulin's up, and you just go onto a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet that is ketogenic, that now your insulin levels go down. Insulin has a role to play in the reabsorption of your electrolytes in your kidneys. And so you know, your, your body's compensated for this high level of insulin for years and years and years. And now all of a sudden that drops off. And it's like, well, what's happening? Maybe you spill out some more uh, electrolytes than you're, than you're supposed to. Maybe. I didn't find that. I, don't, I find that most people don't have that. But there are people that do come across that. Okay, so then you check your blood panels and things like that. Okay, maybe you're a bit off on something. You just supplement that. Usually that's short term and you can you can fix that. But as far as heart rate variability in particular, and understanding those, what that means, I, that's not something I'm too well versed in. But I, whenever I come across a situation like this, you know, I, I sort of think about that set principle. Like, well, whatever's happening... I'm giving my body what, what it wants. And so I just trust that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. And you, when you think about heart rate variability, it's one of the best metrics we have to see um, how well your autonomic nervous system is doing, right? So we don't want to be too much sympathetic, too, too much on the sympathetic side or too much on the parasympathetic side. We want to be really balanced. So the higher your heart rate variability shows that your nervous system is becoming adaptable to your environment, the foods you eat, the thoughts you think, your environment, et cetera. So 
what I have seen, not just with myself, but with a lot of people who are eating a lot of vegetables and plant toxins, it stimulates their immune system and stimulates their nervous system to a point where it actually lowers their heart rate variability, which is not a good thing. It's showing that your immune system is too much in the sympathetic state. Your nervous system, excuse me, is in this sympathetic state. So by eliminating the plant toxins or reducing them, you stop stimulating that sympathetic state so much, your body goes into this parasympathetic rest, digest, and then it increases your heart rate variability. So I've seen that with myself and with a lot of people. I use the aura ring to track that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't um, tried that yet, but uh, it's, it's interesting. How do you like it? I love it. It's great. You know, I, I, it's one thing to like get the metrics. I don't want a ring to tell me how I should feel. So you got to also pay attention to how you feel, but I, I like it. I, and I see how much deep I got REM and it, it gives me a good idea, but I don't put all the value in that. I put the value in my innate intelligence and use that as like a clue. So I like it. Here's my final question, Anthony. What are your thoughts on, on fruit? Specifically, let's talk about Paul Saladino who I've had on the show a couple of times, right? Carnivore MD. He's a big advocate of meat and fruit, 200 grams, 300 grams of fruit each day. I know fruit has less plant toxins than vegetables, but what are your thoughts on his approach in fruit in general? Um, Well, I think it's, it's, well, it's it's a bit complex, but the idea that that fruit are less toxic, um, it can be true, you know, especially sweet fruit. So fruit that has fructose uh, in general will have less toxins. And that's thought, uh, that's thought evolutionarily why we uh, recognize fructose as very, very sweet. You know, it's, it's, it's much sweeter than the other carbohydrates. The other carbohydrates, even glucose is very mildly sweet. Fructose is very, very sweet. And so it's thought that the reason that we recognize that as sweet is because we're recognizing that as, as safe, right? Because there aren't really anything that, you know, things that contain fructose that are acutely deadly poisonous for us, that will just kill us that day. And so it, it, we found it to be more safe. So this is, again, in that, that survival situation where we're better adapted to survive in, in harsh situations where we, we can't get a kill. And so and we're going to die if we don't. Like a panther, if it doesn't get a kill, it's going to die. It's going to starve to death. We were able to you know, eat fruit. And, we were, and our ancestors that were able to recognize that as safe and survive, those are the ones that uh, you know, we're, we're descended from. So that's the idea. But that doesn't mean that there's no toxins in them, right? You know, like just all citrus have foranocumarins, which are, you know, toxic. You know, we, this, this is, they have to be detoxified by the liver. This is why you can't take grapefruit with uh, certain medications because the enzymes that are detoxifying the foranocumarins in uh, grapefruit are also the same enzymes that are that are metabolizing certain medications. So that's going to screw with your uh, medication metabolism. You're either going to get too much or too little of a, of a dose, and you can get toxicities or just not not uh, have it be useful. So um, anyway, they, they're light sensitive. They bind permanently when when activated by UV light. They permanently bind to proteins and DNA. They can cause second degree burns. You know, there's there's you know, people have had sort of lime juice on their hands, squeezing limes, and they get, you know, in the sun, and they can actually get second degree burns on their hands. That's in the medical literature. And so there are still toxins in there. Are they as bad as other things? In sweet fruits? No, not really. And there are some fruits that are actually, you know, pretty benign. Most of these things, the ones that, that want to be eaten, they're all involved with birds. And so some of them are safe. But I mean, how many berries are out there that, that are just poisonous? I mean, people know, oh, don't eat those berries. You have to eat specific berries, you know, like raspberries, you know, probably not that big of a harm. Blackberries, you know, who cares? But 
you know, there are many, many berries that are quite toxic and that you're not supposed to eat. And that's because they're designed, they co-evolved with birds or some other animal because they wanted to have that animal eat them because that seed will germinate in their gut and then they'll pass that seed out there. So fruit wants something to eat their fruit, right? Plants want something to eat their fruit. They don't necessarily want you to eat the fruit, right? So a good example of that is cassowary bird in, in the tropics. They eat, they're just frugivores. They only eat fruit. There's about 150 different varieties of fruit that they eat. Every single one of those things will kill you. Every single one of those tropical, tropical fruits, oh, that's it. We're living in the tropics. We just eat fruit. All of those tropical fruits will kill you. And it will kill basically any other animal that eat it, except for the cassowary bird, because that seed germinates in the cassowary bird. And so it wants that cassowary bird to eat it. It does not want anything else to eat it. Because if you eat that fruit, that seed does not turn into a plant. And that's what that plant is trying to do. It's not trying to feed the poor. It's not trying to feed the hungry. And you know, it's like it's trying to procreate. It's trying to pass on its genetics. That is the purpose of life. That is the meaning of life in a very real and biological sense. And so, you know, you are getting in the way of that and it's going to fight you on it. Fructose itself is problematic. Eating it in fruit is better than just juicing it because you know you, you the fiber in the fruit actually slows down and and delays or even prevents some of the absorption of the fructose. But you know some of that fructose is going to get in and if you're juicing things or drinking soda, that gets into your body and that can cause harm and we have a lot of studies showing that fructose it can be quite harmful. Now I think uh, one of one of uh, Dr. Saladino's arguments is that, well, you know, in in the context of the fruit, maybe fructose isn't as bad because there are all other things that are good for it. Well, there are certainly things that are good for you in in those fruits, you know, different vitamins and minerals and things like that. But do those make the fructose then good for you, or is it that they're just mitigating the bad effects of the fructose or table sugar versus honey? There are things in honey that are definitely going to be better for you than than just sugar, but it does have a lot of fructose and it does have a lot of sugar. And so, you know, we don't really have any studies showing that, you know, that, that the fructose in honey is good for you, right? It may be less bad for you than like table sugar, but, you know, that, that doesn't mean this, that it's actually good for you. Maybe the things in honey are good for you to such an extent that eating honey overall is good for you, even though you're getting some of that fructose. But I don't, I don't think there's any reason to expect that the fructose is going to act differently in your body from honey, or from fruit, or from table sugar. You know, it's a, it's a chemical. Fructose is fructose is fructose, and once it gets into your body, that's all your body sees is just fructose, and it's going to respond the same way. I don't think, I don't know of any any research or data or science that would suggest otherwise. So that's that's sort of my opinion on that. And that's why I avoid it. Yeah, it's well explained. Um, we've ran out of time, and I, there's so much more I wanted to talk to you about. So we got to do round two, maybe in person. But last quick question for you, Anthony, is about it's about my favorite supplement. Uh, it's called Vitamin G Gratitude, and I always ask my guest the last question: What are you grateful for today? Oh wow! Well, I'm I'm, I'm very grateful that I've, I've been able to be introduced to um, all this information, people like yourself and others that that have allowed me to come to the ideas and conclusions that I have to just be able to help myself and my family and others. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that 
I've been able to develop a platform that people actually listen to. And I get messages all the time from people saying how much their lives have been changed and, and, and benefited. They're coming off medications, they're losing weight, they're getting healthier, and so much more. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to learn about this stuff and be able to pass it on in such a way that that so many people can benefit from it. I'm, I'm, I, that sounds like such a lame thing to say, but I'm truly grateful for that. You know, I really am so happy that I've been able to help people. It's something that, you know, it doesn't sound like something you see from, you know, some, you know, dumb jock that just likes going out and hurting people on rugby field, which I truly enjoyed. I, I truly enjoyed smashing people. Like that was that, that gave me a lot of, of happiness and joy, you know, but I've always really cared about people in general. And, um, and it's always, you know, people suffering and, and being sick and being harmed has always really bothered me. And I've always tried to help people whenever I could. And I think I'm just very grateful that I've been able to do that on, on a larger and larger scale. And I just hope that I can keep doing that and help more people in the future. Amen. You sure are. So everybody go subscribe to the Plant Free MD podcast. It's Anthony's incredible podcast. He also has an amazing YouTube channel. He's approaching 100K subscribers. You're going to get one of these uh, silver plaques yeah. very, very soon. So go subscribe <laughs> to Anthony's YouTube channel. Anywhere else you want them to go, uh, Instagram is at uh, Anthony Shafi MD. Anywhere else? Oh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, I have a link tree on my on my Instagram that people can find other links. Like, you know, Twitter's Anthony underscore Chafee. That, those are the main ones. Yeah. My YouTube channel is just Anthony Chafee MD as well. And uh, yeah. And people can find the other the other uh, social media spots through those. Awesome. We'll reference that down below. So go check out Anthony and the incredible work he's doing. Stay tuned for his new book coming out maybe this year, maybe next year, but we'll bring him back to talk about that book. And uh, appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I already look forward to the next conversation. This was just so awesome. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, man. It was really a pleasure to, to come on and see you again. I appreciate you giving me the chance. Well, uh, there you go. That's the conversation. Uh, I hope that was enlightening. And maybe it's time to test out if plant toxins are working for you or against you. Please consider sharing this episode with a friend, somebody you know who could benefit from listening to this conversation. Go check out Dr. Anthony Shafi on his Instagram, on his YouTube, on his podcast, Plant Free MD. We're going to put all that down below. And consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review if you haven't done so already. If you want to watch the video interview with Dr. Shafi from today and any of the previous Keto Camp Podcast video interviews, that's on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Keto Camp. Please leave the show a rating and review if you haven't done so yet. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.